Hi, it's Nathan Eckersley here. Before we get into the new episode of my podcast, I do need to warn you. On this episode, you might hear me asking you to send me a message with your opinion. I love hearing your opinions, but the messages you hear me reading out on air are from the live broadcast of the podcast, which takes place on Wizard Radio Station every Sunday from 3pm UK time. If you want to get involved, make sure you listen live then. Please don't try to send in any messages for this episode, as your message won't be read, but you might still be charged. Anyway, that's the legal bit done. Now on to the show. And welcome, I'm Nathan Eckersley and on the show this week we are talking about the Labour Party conference and asking if Labour is ready for government. Plus I'll be looking at the Insulate Britain protests and whether or not they are a credible voice on climate change. It's a packed show and I want to hear from you, so let's go. of the Labour Party is an anomaly in the study of politics because, unlike many things throughout history, it has a defined starting point. The Roman Republic ended when Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon to invade Rome and declare himself emperor. The First World War started when Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated by Gavrilo Princip in Sarajevo. Labour's collapse began at 10.50pm on the 22nd of February 2012 when the then Labour Member of Parliament for Falkirk, Eric Joyce, headbutted and punched Conservative MP Stuart Andrew in the House of Commons bar and then hit his Labour colleague Phil, Win Phil Wilson, who was trying to restrain him. Joyce resigned from the party and stood down as an MP at the 2015 general election. This wasn't Joyce's first offence. In November 2010, he was arrested for drink driving and failing to provide a breath test. He was also arrested a number of times after the assault in the Commons Bar for cutting his electronic monitoring tag with scissors and for other altercations on the parliamentary estate, in Edinburgh Airport and even in a shop in Camden. The selection process to replace Joyce in Falkirk caused a great deal of controversy as the trade union Unite, whose local chairman was also the Falkirk Labour chairman, was accused of vote rigging and forging membership applications to get one of his own members selected as the candidate for the safe Labour seat. The incident was referred to the police and Labour's National Executive Committee took the extraordinary step of running a new candidate selection process itself. The then Labour, Labour leader Ed Miliband decided to reform the rules for election candidate selection and leadership contests in response to Joyce's poor conduct and that of his constituency association to give members a greater say in who they wanted representing them and to limit the influence of trade unions in the selection process. The biggest reform, which accelerated Labour's decline, was allowing anyone to pay £3 to become a Labour registered supporter and vote in leadership elections. This rule change was put to the test after Miliband's resignation following defeat in the 2015 general election. 
A columnist for The Spectator, Toby Young, led a campaign to get people to become supporters and vote for Jeremy Corbyn in order to make Labour as unelectable as possible. Corbyn was very much an outsider in the 2015 Labour leadership campaign, and it came as a great surprise that someone who had made a 30-year career out of being a rowdy Republican backbencher, always pictured out on the picket line or being arrested, was suddenly a viable candidate to become the leader of Her Majesty's most loyal opposition. Corbyn's election signalled an end to New Labour, and he took the party down a much more socialistic route. During his leadership, which spanned three Conservative Prime Ministers, he became an obstacle to Theresa May's Brexit plans, and had a very clear policy platform, which managed to see Labour's vote share and seat gains increase in 2017, leaving Theresa May with a minority government. However, official opposition quickly impeded the national interest and pushed the UK constitution to breaking point during the 2017-19 Parliament. Corbyn's leadership also dogged the Labour Party with allegations of anti-Semitism, which caused a divisive split in both the Parliamentary Party and the wider membership. He also moved the Labour Party to become much more middle-class and metropolitan. The division Corbyn's Labour Party created in Parliament and in the public saw him lead Labour to its worst result since 1935 in the 2019 general election. Corbyn resigned the leadership and was succeeded by Sakir Starmer, the former Director of Public Prosecutions and one of the leaders of the campaign to stop Brexit. Starmer was chosen as an antidote to the hard-left politics of Jeremy Corbyn and the new wing he had created within the Labour Party. However, since Starmer's one core idea of stopping Brexit from happening can no longer happen as the UK is now out of the European Union, he hasn't got a single flagship or identifiable policy Throughout the pandemic, Labour has nodded through virtually every piece of COVID-19 related legislation with little to no proper scrutiny. Even on measures he and his shadow frontbenchers have disagreed with, he's voted to support them. Given all of that, what does Labour under the leadership of Sir Keir Starmer stand for? The best answer so far on this was given by Starmer's predecessor and current shadow business secretary, Ed Miliband, on Newsnight earlier this month was an emergency. We would be investing in the green recovery. We would be borrowing well, to invest because it makes that. sense to Ed, do that. I'm going to put to you at your yeah. conference, the Labour Socialist grouping is going to ask Labour to vote for their Green New Deal motion. You'll be aware of this. It sees energy, water, transport going back into public I'm ownership. We're in favour of common ownership. Yeah. So you'll Keir, vote for that. Keir Starmer you'll said vote, that. You'll well, vote there's yes always the management. There's, people, always, there's always management of these things at conferences, but yeah, I can tell you we're in favour of common ownership. Energy, Absolutely. water, transport all goes back into public ownership well, under Labour. Is that right? Wait for the conference, but but I, Keir Starmer said in his leadership campaign he was in favour of public ownership in those areas. He ha we haven't changed that commitment. We haven't. Wh and why is that? Let me just explain this to you. Because in particular, in relation to natural monopolies, if we're going to make this green transition, then public ownership is the right way to go. And okay. we, we don't resolve from those commitments. So we may see the Labour front bench voting in favour of that. On, we may well see that. There's, okay. there's always, there's always messy done. these Let, things. Let's As Ed Miliband stated there. The Labour Party will be voting on whether to make common ownership an official party policy at their conference in Brighton, taking place this weekend. Common ownership is nothing new. It's a central part of socialist philosophy and a popular idea in those red wall seats Labour lost in 2019. In an attempt to define himself and his thinking, Kirstarmer wrote a 12,000 word essay which didn't use the word socialism once. 
Instead, it was much more oriented around community, hard work and patriotism. The only Labour leader to win an election in the last 46 years is Tony Blair, and his brand of socialism is much closer to the right than that of any other Labour leader. Another issue Starmer is trying to tackle this year at conference is voting in leadership contests, which takes us full circle. Sakir wants to end the one-member, one-vote system Ed Miliband introduced, and reinstates the Electoral College system, which would increase the say of MPs and unions in choosing future party leaders, and end the ability for registered supporters to vote in leadership elections. Sakir Starmer is stuck. He needs to move Labour away from its direction under Corbyn, whilst trying to define himself as a compromise candidate between the hard left and the new Labour factions. In doing so, he has brought nothing new to the table, and that is why his core message is not coming through. Now, he is at conference, bogged down in internal politicking, when he needs to be connecting with the wider membership and the rest of the public. Until the Labour Party can stop with the infighting and unite behind a leader with vision, they will find themselves on the opposition benches for the foreseeable future. I want to hear from you on this, so please do get in touch. You can tweet us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at WizRadio. You can vote in our poll. The question of the day is, is the Labour Party ready for government? To vote on the poll, visit wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live. You can text us at no extra cost, only standard network rate supply at 07807 183538. You can email us station at wizardradio.co.uk. All of our contact details can be found on our website at www.wizardradio.co.uk. We'll be back after this. Welcome back. Let's hear what you have to say. And our first message today comes from Tyler. Tyler says, Nathan, I don't think anyone would look at the Conservative government at the moment and think that they are ready for government. But here they are. What does being ready for government look like? Was Theresa May ready to be Prime Minister? On the surface, yes. But then the second she became Prime Minister, it all fell to pieces. I guess my point is, you don't have to tr- you don't truly know until you're in power. The Conservative Party has been in power for nearly 12 years. I'm not going to argue about whether they've done a good job or a bad job, because that's a debate that could go on all day. But it's time for something new, and from my perspective, the Labour Party are as ready for government as the actual current government is. Well, thank you for your message there, Tyler. And on the question around the current Conservative government, they have the benefit of experience. So many of the current cabinet ministers have been MPs for, as you say, for nearly 12 years now. And there are others who've been members of parliament for even longer. I think Michael Gove was first elected in... 2005, he's now one of the most senior cabinet ministers. Uh, Boris Johnson, he was an MP for uh, many years before stepping back to become Mayor of London and then returning to the House of Commons. So again, he's got that experience of being Mayor of London and a MP previously before that, and an MP during the new Labour government as well. And he served in the shadow front bench of the Conservative Party as uh, uh, well, so he served in a number of different portfolios, which, again, gave him that experience and that uh, perspective on 
other matters of government. And of course, he was a foreign secretary in Theresa May's administration. And the, the point around Theresa May as well, when she first took office, again, she had the majority that David Cameron won in 2015, albeit slim majority. But nonetheless, it was a majority and she was a very strong leader at first. It was only after the 2017 general election where she lost that majority and ended up running a minority government. That's when it all collapsed and fell to pieces. I completely accept your point on that perspective. But around the Labour Party at the moment, that it's that experience that's missing. And naturally, you will get that from uh, 11, nearly 12 years in opposition, that the more experienced uh, MPs and uh, former ministers as well who served in the Blair and Brown governments are no longer sat on the green benches. Some of them have moved over to the House of Lords. Some have uh, quit politics altogether and moved into the private sector or even just uh, retired. And that that is a symptom of being in opposition for so long. But when you look at the current makeup of the Parliamentary Labour Party, that there really is just a distinct lack of experience or knowledge of government on that. I mean, when you take a, a look at the shadow cabinet that Sakir Starmer has at the moment, of the 34 members that it has, only two have actually run government departments. That's Ed Miliband, who was Energy and Climate Change Secretary, and uh, Lord Falconer, who was Justice Secretary and Lord Chancellor. That That's it. They are the only two people in his top team who have run a government department and have the experience of sitting in cabinet. And when we look at Labour's current 199 MPs, yes, there are a lot who did serve in junior roles or even some uh, served in cabinet roles during the Labour governments of Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. But of those 199, only one Labour MP has ever held a great office of state. And that was Dame Margaret Beckett, who served as Foreign Secretary. That That is just an, an astonishing number, really. One out of 199 has served in one of the most senior offices in the United Kingdom. T to me, that's why I don't think Labour is ready for government at the moment. And some of the messaging that's come out from the party conference at the moment to say that Keir Starmer's main battle is around voting in leadership elections and reforming the rules to uh, give trade unions a greater say or give members of parliament a greater say and peers. To me, that's not as important uh, an issue as actually getting out and connecting with voters. That's what Keir Starmer needs to do. He's He's got a reputation at the moment as just being a bit dull, a bit bland, and he hasn't actually got any major policies at the moment. Yes, he wrote the essay earlier in the week, and that was published with the Fabian Society. But again, it, it didn't offer anything new, nothing groundbreaking, nothing that you could really say was an interesting idea. It, it just didn't offer anything to the wider electorate and get people thinking that you know, he be could become the next Prime Minister. I mean, yes, he is a, a much more palatable candidate than Jeremy Corbyn was. And Jeremy Corbyn, to, to me, I just could not picture him at all becoming Prime Minister. I don't think he was the right candidate. I don't think he was a very good leader of the Labour Party or leader of the opposition. But at least with Sakir Starmer, he, he does have 
again, some level of experience, not in government, not in parliament, but as the director of public prosecutions, he knows the legal system very well and worked as a barrister for many years and a high-ranking lawyer. So from that perspective, he, he brings that new perspective to the role of the leader of the opposition. But fundamentally, I don't think Labour is better than the Conservative government at the moment. Well, thank you for your message, Tyler. Our next message comes from Mariella. Mariella says, you don't need me to tell you this, Nathan, but a political, political party is only ready for government if the public think they are and vote for them. That is the only thing that separates a party from being in power or not. And the fact is that whether the Labour Party think they are ready or not, they are not getting the votes they need. They are losing ground in the by-elections and local elections. Even though they have had over a decade in opposition, which is a beneficial position to gain ground from, the party could have no policies and rubbish leadership, yet the public could still vote them in. That's the only thing that matters, and that's where they're failing right now. Thank you for your message, Mariella. And that's an interesting point that you make there. The Labour Party suffered some terrible losses at the 2021 local elections that were held in May, and they lost seats that and councils that they've held for absolutely years. One of the ones that Labour lost control of was Durham County Council. Labour have run Durham County Council in a majority for over a hundred years, and it's now in no overall control after getting so many Conservative gains. That, that's just extraordinary, and it's so simplified. It's it if it. it, it epitomizes, excuse me, epitomizes this new realignment that we are finding ourselves in, where these more working class, uh, poorer northern areas are becoming more conservative leaning and voting for the conservatives. And Boris Johnson is acknowledging this and is pivoting his own position to become a much more appealing leader to these voters. He's increasing the role of the state and moving uh, a lot more resources to the north and opening government departments in northern areas and really just making sure that these voters who in many cases did lend him their votes are being heard and he is reflecting that uh, at the moment and that's why he made so many gains that's why the conservatives won Hartlepool as well in that by-election earlier this year and the conservatives did nearly win it in 2019 but there was a resurgence from the Brexit party, as it was then, and they took the second place and they put so much effort into campaigning in Hartlepool. And that's what prevented the Conservatives from winning it then. But nevertheless, the Conservatives have the seat now. And again, that is a core part of this realignment that we find ourselves in. And I don't think the Labour Party has fully accepted that. They are still almost uh, licking their wounds from the 2019 election and rather than working on how to make themselves more electable and much more appealing to the voter base they are still again as I mentioned before in my response to Tyler they are still focused on this internal politicking and infighting at the moment and until they stop that I don't see them uh, winning an election anytime soon thank you for that message Mariella our next message comes from Maya Maya says, this government have proven that they're irresponsible with power. This is the Conservative Party that forced a Brexit referendum and then fluffed up the deal. And now everything that the Remain side has said would happen is happening, including the shortages. This is the same party that couldn't handle the response to the pandemic and kept, and are still, reacting too late. 
I think it's time that people give Labour a chance. So many people are complaining about the government. I see it on my social media pretty much every day. So go out and vote and we'll get a new government. I think the Labour Party are as ready as they will ever be and people need to give them a chance. Thank you for that message, Maya. And I, I don't see that the, the Brexit referendum was irresponsible. I think David Cameron acknowledged that there was a rising tide of Euroscepticism among the electorate and within British politics generally. I mean, you could see that in the 2014 European Parliament elections as well, when uh, UKIP ended up actually winning that. UKIP, a uh, blast from the past there, led by Nigel Farage. And th they gained so many votes and also won a lot of seats at council elections as well. And council elections are an interesting one to look at, the local elections, because they really are a good gauge on where the electorate is at the moment. And of course, with that, it gives you a much more regionally focused sense of what voters are looking for. You saw that in 2014 with UKIP winning so many seats. I d from memory, I don't believe they won any councils, but they certainly took a significant number of seats from the Conservatives because they were offering that alternative agenda. And the same can be said with the 2021 local elections, as mentioned before, that the Conservatives won so many seats from those traditional Labour areas and also took new positions as well, like the Police and Crime Commissioners. They won the vast majority of those seats up for grabs. So from that perspective, I, I don't think the Brexit referendum was irresponsible, and I do think Brexit was the right decision overall. But... Again, on the shortages, that's not too much of a government issue. That's a short shortage of HGV drivers. That uh, again, there's because of lockdown and the the pandemic, the the driving courses and driving lessons weren't being put on. So there is that backlog of HGV drivers needing to be trained and uh, put on the roads. So that that's more of a logistical issue rather than a symptom of Brexit. And it's the same with these. Uh, supposed fuel shortages. Again, there is no shortage of fuel, it's just a shortage of drivers to deliver that fuel. But on giving Labour a chance, I do, I do take your point that 11-12 years of Conservative government is a long time and Labour has had a number of opportunities to prove to the general public that they are ready for government as we're talking about today. There's the 2015 election where Ed Miliband had the opportunity to show that the coalition wasn't working between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats. That coalition, again, there was so much infighting there, so much disagreement, so much tension, and yet the Conservatives came away from that with a majority. Uh, David Cameron, of course, uh, had the Brexit referendum, which he uh, ended up resigning as a result of because uh, the Leave side won, and uh, Theresa May took over, and again, she, she was riding high after that, and Jeremy Corbyn, I, I give him credit, he did take advantage of the situation and uh, as a good orator, he, he is a very good speech giver, he was able to convince a large number of voters and, that, and even though so many voters didn't see him as prime ministerial material, he was able to win over a number of uh, hearts and minds and that's how we ended up with a minority government. However, the serious tensions in the 2017-19 Parliament showed that, again, Labour wasn't ready for government under Jeremy Corbyn. And Keir Starmer does have a, a difficult uh, job here in trying to move Labour away from 
that position and make them more electable. And by being more middle ground, more of a compromise candidate, he is trying. But I think we need to give him more time before we can say Labour is ready and people do need to give him a chance. Thank you for that message, Maya. And our next message comes from Charlie. Charlie says, Nathan, you argue that one of the issues with the Labour Party is the lack of experience of government. But if that is the strength of the Conservatives, then I think we need a new government. If the way the Tories are behaving is how experienced politicians behave, then we need a new people who are going to bring a new set of skills to government and are going to do things differently. These governments have ignored the needs of the poor, they've torn the country in half, and it's just blunder after blunder. You have the Foreign Secretary refusing to work on holiday whilst Afghanistan falls, just months after the Health Secretary broke his own Covid rules to have an affair. And the Prime Minister stands by both of them. If this is what experience looks like, I don't want it. Well, thank you for that message, Charlie, and again, you make a, a valid point there. The, the Conservative Party as a whole uh, has the, the experience of being in government, having been in government since 2010. And of course, the, as mentioned before, there was the coalition. But on this, a lot of those MPs were who were elected in 2010 were brand new MPs. There was a massive overhaul of uh, who was in the House of Commons and it was a significant chunk were brand new MPs in 2010 on, all, on both sides of the House with that. And the vast majority of those 2010 intake are now in the middle ranks of government and quite a few are now at cabinet level. And Liz Truss is a notable example of that. She came in in 2010 and is now foreign secretary. And uh, Sajid Javid as well was the first of the 2010 intake to become a cabinet minister and has run a wide number of uh, government departments. But I think a lot of this at the moment is down to the leadership. Uh, I, I am very critical of Boris Johnson's leadership. I am in no way a fan of his. I don't think he has been a very good prime minister. And I totally agree with you that uh, having the foreign secretary uh, stay on holiday as Afghanistan falls and having uh, the prime minister defend Matt Hancock as he had an affair, breaking his own COVID rules, I accept those are clear clear faults. But overall, the Conservative Party has kept continuity within the, the system of government for now. And that that isn't a strong argument, I accept, to say, well, the Conservatives should stay in government. But overall, the Labour Party has not been a good enough opposition, I don't think, so far. And time after time, they've had the opportunity to provide clear scrutiny and opposition to the actions of the government. And I don't think their arguments are holding water at the moment and their voting records as well are showing that they may say they disagree with something as I've mentioned before with Keir Starmer and the coronavirus restrictions they may disagree with something but actually they end up voting for it anyway that that's not opposition that's just pr providing an alternative argument because you have to because you are seen as the official opposition in the House of Commons until the the Labour Party really starts to make gains in its uh, arguments and really hold conservative politicians to account and government ministers and do the job of being the opposition more effectively, then I think that is how the Labour Party can make more ground on this and win over the hearts and minds of more voters, especially in those red wall seats that they lost in 2019, because there are a number of those constituencies that Labour lost that they could win again. You know, the, the Conservative 
majority in there is only within a few hundred in some of them. And if they put in the work now, then they can make those gains again. Well, please do keep getting in touch. A reminder that to get involved, you can tweet us or DM us on Twitter and Instagram using the handle at Radio. You can vote in our poll. The question of the day is, is the Labour Party ready for government? To vote on the poll, visit wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live. You can text us at no extra cost, only standard network rate supply at 07807 183538. You can email us station at wizardradio.co.uk and all of our contact details can be found on our website wizardradio.co.uk. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. Let's check in with the results so far on this week's poll. The question of the day is, is the Labour Party ready for government? And 54% of you say yes, Labour is ready for government, whereas 46% of you say no, it is not. Very close result there. And please vote in the poll if you haven't already. To vote on the poll, visit wizardradio.co.uk forward slash listen to vote live. And a reminder that all of our contact details can be found on our website www.wizardradio.co.uk. Let's go to some more of your messages, and our next message comes from Aidan. Aidan says, your listener might say, Nathan, that people need to give Labour a chance. But what is it they're giving a chance on? As you said, there are no clearly identifiable Labour policies. I couldn't tell you one policy that Labour has proposed about the two biggest issues of the day, Brexit and Covid. I know that Keir is a Remainer, but that's a bit too late now, isn't it? And they agreed with everything on Covid. There are no identifiable Labour policies, but I could tell you what the Tories are standing for. They want to invest more outside of London, they're working on trade deals and making a global Britain. That's more than I can say for Labour. Well, thank you very much for that message, Aidan. And I I agree with you there. I can't think of any major flagship policy that the Labour Party is standing for other than common ownership, as we heard in the clip before from Ed Miliband. But again, that's nothing new. That's just reaffirming the Labour Party's commitment to a core principle of socialist thinking. And again, with Brexit, Keir Starmer was a leader of the pro-Remain side of the argument and was involved in the People's Vote campaign at a very high level and wanted to even reverse Brexit with that second referendum. And that's, uh, again, a big part of why so many traditional Labour voters moved away from the party, because Labour under Jeremy Corbyn and flanked by Keir Starmer and uh, Diane Emily Thornbury and other senior Labour figures and shadow cabinet ministers, uh, shadow cabinet portfolio holders, they were all so pro-Remain and so in favour of a second referendum. And to me, that is just simply undemocratic. You cannot have the biggest poll the UK has ever held, a turnout of 72%, and actually expect that that could potentially be overturned because you do not like the result. And I just can't see the Labour Party, as it is now, making any gains when it's acting the way it is. The Conservatives have that clear messaging, global Britain for international policies and levelling up for domestic policies. Now there is a lot of confusion about what levelling up means, but at least there is some acknowledgement that it means moving power and business outside of London and into other areas of the country. So thank you for your message, Aidan. And our final message on this segment comes from Josh. 
Josh says, when the US presidential election was coming up, I was watching loads of YouTube videos with commentary about what people thought would happen. And I saw a video of this guy who used the phrase, power begets power. I'd never heard it before, but it means that when you get a little bit of power, it's easier to get more powerful and then even more powerful and so on. That's what's happened with the Tories. They've used their power to get themselves even more power. Keir Starmer is in a difficult position with the party, but at the end of the day, people want to elect people that they know can get the job done, whether they agree with their ideologies or not. And the Tories have been doing that for the past 10 years, even though everyone loves to hate them. Well, thank you for that message, Josh. And that's a very interesting perspective that you've got there around power begets power. And the Conservatives have definitely done that to a large extent. As mentioned before, with the coalition governments between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats under David Cameron, the, again, that was a major shift because, of course, we went from a, a large majority Labour government. Admittedly, that majority was won by Tony Blair, but nonetheless, it was a large majority. The Labour Party had that mandate to all of a sudden a very delicate coalition government led by two opposite parties to Labour and the Conservatives were able to, and David Cameron in particular, to give him credit, he managed to work with the coalition very well and the fact that it lasted for the full five-year parliament really is credit to him and also to Nick Clegg for making it work because we know there were many, many issues within that and of course that's how he won his slim majority in 2015. That, that, there was a step back in 2017 with Theresa May, but Boris Johnson has used that experience and used his persona to win that 80-seat majority in 2019. And the Conservatives have just built on that. And with Keir Starmer, you're absolutely right. He is in such a difficult position because, as you say, power begets power. It's a fantastic phrase, that. And it, he's not been in government. He can't have been. He was first elected in the 2015 election and he doesn't have experience of government. However, his experience of being director of public prosecutions, a very public taxpayer funded role, does give him that level of ex experience that a large number of his other Labour Party MPs do not have. But the other difficult position Keir Starmer is in is trying to win over Scotland. In Scotland used to be the central base of Labour support, and it was with Scotland that Labour would win those uh, majorities. But since Nicola Sturgeon has just totally transformed Scotland into an SNP haven, the Labour Party has enough seats that you can count on the fingers on one hand. The, the Labour Party has lost that base. Even in the Scottish Parliament, the Conservatives are the official opposition. Labour is not in the equation there, really. They, yes, they have a, a number of MSPs, but ultimately it's not enough to make that significant impact. When devolution first happened in Scotland, it was the Labour Party who were in Scottish government. It was a Labour politician who was the First Minister of Scotland. Well, that has changed quite significantly. And with that, it's very difficult for Keir Starmer to make any traction and his main battle will definitely be when he goes to the polls facing up to Nicola Sturgeon's SNP. Well, we're going to move on now. Thank you very much, Josh, for that message. And we're going to move on to look at another really big story from this week. A new protest group called Insulates Britain has surfaced to urge the government to do more to tackle climate change, to stop fuel poverty, and to have the state 
pay to have every home in the UK insulated to meet the target set out in the 2014 Paris Climate Accords. The group is linked to Extinction Rebellion, who have caused mass disruption a number of times over the last few years. Insulate Britain's aim is noble. Climate change is a serious issue which does need addressing. However, the methods they use to put their point of view across does undermine them. The group have been stopping traffic on the M25 and other very busy roads, grinding commuters to a halt as they sit on the motorway holding their banners. They are putting their lives at risk as well as the lives of the police officers sent to monitor them. Their antics have also directly led to a number of incidents, including a four-car pile-up which led to a woman being airlifted to hospital, and also holding up an ambulance transporting a stroke victim to A&E, and that was held up for so long that the delay left the patient paralysed from the neck down for life. Had the ambulance not been stopped for so long, then the patient could have made a full recovery. As soon as you try to justify that a person's paralysis is an unfortunate accident that happened as part of your protest, you have lost the argument. There is no way on earth that somebody losing the ability to ever move their arms and legs again is an acceptable outcome so that a group of jobless attention seekers can sit on the motorway. When they are causing such carnage, the protest loses all meaning and it simply becomes criminal behaviour. The group even tried to hold up the port of Dover, which would have made matters worse for the HDV driver shortage the UK is facing currently, which is delaying the supply chains for fuel and some supermarket deliveries. Organisations like Insulate Britain and Extinction Rebellion make a mockery of the entire argument around climate change. The UK government, and many governments around the world, have climate change at the top of their agenda. But I think the whole debate on this topic is completely skewed. To seriously make an impact in slowing the effects of climate change, the way to do it is to lift a number of regulations to allow the private sector to innovate and remove as many barriers as possible to tech companies so that they have the freedom to be creative with their solutions. There is no use in simply setting arbitrary deadlines on a product on when a product is going to be banned or deciding on a random date 20 years in the future to meet a target by, because ultimately that is just creating a narrative that sounds good for an election campaign. This is what the Prime Minister said about climate change in his address to the United Nations General Assembly earlier this week. And when Kermit the Frog, Kermit the Frog, sang, it's not easy being green. Do you remember that one? I want you to know that he was wrong. He was wrong. It is easy. It's not only easy, it's lucrative and it's right to be green. He was also unnecessarily rude to Miss Piggy, I thought, uh, Kermit the Frog. Compare that to what his predecessor, Margaret Thatcher, said in her UN General Assembly address in 1989. What we are now doing to the world by degrading the land surfaces by polluting the waters and by adding greenhouse gases to the air at an unprecedented rate, all this is new in the experience of the earth. It is mankind and his activities which are changing the environment of our planet in damaging and dangerous ways. Margaret Thatcher was the first major world leader to bring climate change to the global agenda 
and her speech to the General Assembly has been hailed as one of the most important speeches on climate change ever given. She understood that the only way to make any progress in tackling climate change was through investment in innovation and developing nuclear energy. This pioneering speech was initially the philosophy for combating climate change, but the conversation has sadly drifted into sound bites and arbitrary targets. If we are going to be serious about the environment, we have to start innovating. The potential is there with hydrogen fuels and artificial intelligence, but we have to be bold enough to encourage and facilitate innovation. Let me know what you think. Is Insulate Britain a credible voice on climate change? Do you agree with Insulate Britain and Extinction Rebellion? Do get in touch on Twitter or Instagram using the handle at WizRadio. And you can find all of our contact details on our website at www.wizardradio.co.uk. We'll be back just after this. Welcome back. We're still discussing the Insulate Britain protest and asking if the group is a credible voice on climate change. So let's go back to your messages. And our first message on this comes from Melissa. Melissa says, credible or not, Nathan, Insulate Britain are getting people to talk about a niche issue which isn't easy at all. It's hard enough to get people to care about climate change, no less home insulation. But they're also coming up with a solution that the state should pay for every home in the UK to be insulated. This is a group of people who have made the issue of home insulation a front page news story this week. They're not going to be the people who, on their own, get the government to make change, I don't think, but they've brought the movement a long way. Well, thank you for your message, Melissa. And I accept your points there, that they have brought the issue around home insulation to the front, and for that, yes, there is some credit to be given there, but the methods they are using to put their message across, I think, undermines the importance of it. Yes, the UK has committed to meeting uh, certain targets within those 2014 Paris Climate Accords, and of course, in just a few weeks' time, the UK will be hosting the COP26 Climate Summit in Glasgow, where, again, a new set of targets will be set, and leaders will meet to discuss the new demands. But on this issue, I I just don't think holding up a motorway solves anything. Yes, they are bringing awareness to an insulation problem in certain areas, but actually by holding up so much traffic, many of those cars will just have their engines idling and creating more fumes from the stationary traffic. So from that perspective, that's not very environmentally friendly. But there's also a level of hypocrisy to this topic as well, and that's the fact that one of the lead spokesmen for Insulate Britain, uh, a gentleman called Liam Norton, he has gone on a number of media outlets, including Tonight Live on GB News and Good Morning Britain on ITV, to put his group's message across. But yet, on both occasions, he's been confronted by the fact that he, in his very expensive home in London, does not have it insulated. It, it is not insulated and he is he is not paying to have it insulated. How can you have the lead spokesman for your organisation, who want an organisation that wants to insulate every home in Britain, to not have his own home insulated? 
the hypocrisy around this really is startling, and that's why I don't think Insulate Britain are a credible organisation and a credible voice on climate change. Because fundamentally, if their lead spokespeople are not prepared to do the thing they're asking the rest of the country to do, then to me that is not a legitimate cause to take any notice from. Thank you for that message, Melissa. Our next message comes from Lewis. Lewis says, I just think the irony of how both Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain act gets missed by the members themselves. By stopping traffic, they're causing cars to wait in queues with their engines on, which damages the planet to a greater extent. And they're doing this whilst arguing for climate change. They, they then make themselves an easy enemy rather than trying to bring people with them. I'm a big supporter of climate change and I'm vegan too, but I'm not in support of Extinction Rebellion because they are just a radical group who make everyone else look bad. It would be better to have a political group who know how to make government change rather than just causing disruption. Well, thank you for that message, Lewis. And again, I completely agree with you there, especially around the fact that stopping the cars on the motorway is just not good for the environment. The cars keep their engines on, the fumes from those engines and cars just go up and it it doesn't solve anything and it undermines their argument, I think. But you're, you're right there that there needs to be as an authoritative voice on climate change, a group that isn't just a mass disruptor because that that to me, as I said before, it just undermines the argument you, to have Extinction Rebellion holding these mass protests across London, closing streets, forcing commuters to who are driving to go in much, much longer routes, which again, longer driving uses more fuels, it needs more fossil fuels from being extracted to the ground. And it, it's just got such a huge knock-on effect that ultimately they are undermining the cause they are trying to champion here. And particularly with uh, Extinction Rebellion and Insulate Britain, such disruption is not the way to do this. As, as I say, a political group there who is not uh, associated with any of these groups, who is making coherent policy platforms, writing papers, doing their own independence research, that is how you win the argument with this. Not deciding to uh, close down Whitehall so you can have a big sit-in or have a, a group of eco-extremists deciding to worship a, an aubergine as some uh, videos have, have shown. It, the, those ridiculous acts and stupid comments that the, these protesters come up with fundamentally undermine the argument. And to me, until you get an organisation, as you mentioned there, involved in changing the government, in formal lobbying with the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, with the Cabinet Office, with all other government departments involved in this. That is how you make a difference, not by annoying commuters and the general public. Thank you for that message, Lewis. And our next message comes from Blake. Blake says, I think both Extinction Rebellion and Insulates Britain are a very effective action group because they get people talking and that's their purpose at the end of the day. Are these the people who will be stood in Parliament making their case? No, that will never happen. But they are pushing the conversation forward, which is very important. They are a part of the conversation which is resulting in climate change policies and being pushed forward by the government. You can disagree with them, but they are causing noise. I don't agree with most of what they do, but they are impressive. Well, thank you for that message, Blake. And 
to, to some extent, I, I agree with you there. They are making noise. They are putting this on the agenda. They are making people talk about the issue of climate change and home insulation. But again, as mentioned before, to have a, the group's lead spokesperson not insulating his own home when he's encouraging all homes to be insulated, that, that level of hypocrisy immediately undermines the campaign and its group. And Extinction Rebellion as well, again, they don't help themselves with having such disruptive protests which see so so much carnage and chaos and again the issues around stopping the emergency services as well i mean that is a really serious issue there that you've got a group stopping people who are who are uh, possibly injured or having a heart attack or a stroke as we mentioned before it's preventing them getting the treatment they need from going to hospitals it's delaying those vital vital services and to, to have a group expecting the state to just step in and pay for everything, it, it simply does not work. The government tried to do this quite a few years ago uh, with the cavity wall insulation. Governments were offering free cavity wall insulation, but a lot of homes that had it simply didn't need it. So they were just taking advantage of this free scheme because a lot of new built homes or homes built around the time this uh, policy was introduced were designed so that uh, insulation wasn't needed but yet homes ended up being insulated and the insulation just retained moisture and caused the properties to end up uh, being damp and it needing to be removed all that insulation needed to be removed so having the state step in is not a viable solution i don't think instead you need to deregulate the government needs to deregulate and allow tech companies and uh, the private sector to really innovate and come up with the creative solutions to climate change and essentially make the world greener through that. Well, I'm afraid that's all the time we've got for this week. But before we go, let's check in with the final poll results. And a reminder, the question on this week's poll is, is the Labour Party ready for government? Well, 42% of you say yes, it is ready for government, whereas 58% of you say no, it is not. Well, thank you to everyone who's listened to this week's episode live and thanks to everyone who's sent in messages. If your message wasn't read out this week, then please do try again. And thanks to everyone who's voted in this week's poll. I'm Nathan Eckersley and I'll be back at the same time, same place next week. Goodbye.